comes to us today from Habakkuk. I think that's the pronunciation we're going with. Just Habakkuk. Chapter 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like eagle, eagles swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors? And remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Thank you. You may be seated. So listening and looking at that again this morning after having marinated in it for a few weeks now, and coming out of Nahum, and I know, (laughs) unfortunately, it's our tendency, I'll say at least here, um, looking at the book of Job, looking at Nahum, starting into Habakkuk, it can feel like all we're saying is darkness, 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 darkness. A lot of the songs we sang this morning were darkness, 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 darkness. <clears throat> and what I want to say to you as we move into Habakkuk this morning, the full resolution, I think, <clears throat> I think of, of Job, Nahum, and Habakkuk is going to come at the end of this book. 
So hold on, okay? We're not all doom and gloom. Um, it can feel that way, but again, look around you. The world is dark and gloomy, and Louis Armstrong was right. I see trees are green and skies are blue, and there's a, what a wonderful world. That's true too, but we live in a fallen, broken, sinful world. And our efforts to make sense of this generally come up short. And thank God, and I mean that literally, he doesn't leave us uninformed about this. If we just go through the Bible and cherry pick the texts that tell us good things about ourselves and that God's going to take care of us, we've missed 85% of the Bible. You say, that's a big number. I'm just telling you. My math may not be exactly specific, but there is a lot of hard, bad, bleak, gloomy, dark, sinful things in the Bible. So God hasn't left us without a witness. God hasn't left us to try to figure this out. He's given us the answers, even when we don't make sense of the things that are going on around us. And so, as we conclude chapter 1 today, it might feel like, you know, like, a to-be-continued type thing, and it is. So don't discount it. It's a step along the way, but the full resolution will come at the end of the book. I promise you, and most of all, better than that, God promises that. So um, verse 1, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. So here in our first verse, we get some establishing content. So much like what we saw in Nahum, this little book is called an oracle. That word can be translated as burden, as some versions and translations put it. It's a heavy message, one from God. And again, like Nahum, this oracle, this burden was seen. It was a vision. The oracle that the prophet saw. So this conveys a vividness and clarity, not just some jumbled up hallucination or lucid dream or something like that, a man saw this vision, and it was from God. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. So the Bible calls Habakkuk a prophet, so that's a pretty good endorsement, right? We'll take God's word for it. A prophet communicates God's messages, God's word, God's burdens, God's oracles, to the people that God wants the burden sent to. The message is given to the prophet, and the prophet carries it to the people. And this prophet, this messenger, is a man named Habakkuk. But oddly enough, Habakkuk isn't going to relay anything to the people from this book. This is a conversation that's going to be between Habakkuk and God. Back and forth, back and forth. This book is their conversation with each other. There are two verses that mention Habakkuk's name in the whole Bible, and that's here in 1.1 and then again in 3.1. So like Nahum, we don't see him mentioned anywhere else outside this book. Therefore, we don't know much about him. We don't even know where he was from. At least Nahum gave us a town name. He was from, he was Nahum of Elkosh. Not Habakkuk, he's just Habakkuk the prophet. Now we can decipher uh, from different clues a time frame here when Habakkuk wrote this book. Um, we've got some things that happen. Uh, so 
we talked about the northern kingdom of Israel being wiped out by the Assyrian army. And then we saw in the book of Nahum, God's judgment on Nineveh, which was the capital city of Assyria, after that had happened, before they could come and take the southern kingdom of Judah, God overtakes uh, Assyria and he uses the Babylonians to do that. We talked in Nahum how it was the Babylonians and the Medes that formed the army that took over Nineveh, destroyed Nineveh. Well, the Babylonian empire would become the next dominant empire on the earth after Assyria. If you hear 605, Babylon defeats Assyria and Egypt at the Battle of Carchemish. And then in 605, Nebuchadnezzar, who was the leader of Babylon, began an invasion on Judah, the southern kingdom. Okay? So what we're going to see in this book in Habakkuk is happens before 605 for sure. But we know that the Babylonians are in power because God's going to talk about the Babylonians being his tool that he's going to use. So all that being said... Most scholars date this book to have been written anywhere between 640 and 615 B.C. And I would actually go a little bit later till after the Babylonians had taken over the Ninevites. Um, <clears throat> making this somewhere in the reign of Josiah in the southern kingdom of Judah. And this would make Habakkuk a contemporary of Nahum, who we talked about um, in the three chapters we covered there. Also a contemporary of Jeremiah and Zephaniah. Now, we're talking about the southern kingdom of Judah, so you see where Jerusalem is there. Um, so that's just down by the Dead Sea. Uh, and if you look over here to the east, you've got Babylon. Assyria was a little bit more north and not quite as far east. Babylon absorbs Assyria, and Babylon, what we would call modern-day Iraq, um, becomes the next world power, and they're taking over all of this land. And they're going to take over Jerusalem, but they haven't done that yet when we meet Habakkuk here. So, just kind of sets the tone, the place, and the time. Interestingly enough, I love this. Habakkuk's name means embrace. And boy, is that going to be appropriate as we work our way through this little book. So remember that. Habakkuk means embrace. And so let's press on. Let's look at our first section which is verses, let me get there, 2, 2, 4. Oh, where am I? Where am I? I went too far. So Habakkuk 1, verses 2 to 4. Okay. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Now there's a lot to dive into here. We have here what is referred to as a lament. And actually this book is made up of laments. Uh, of Habakkuk to God. <clears throat> and it's a prayer or a poem or a song that laments or cries out in distress over the way that things are. Habakkuk cries out to God, O oh Lord, and that's Yahweh, the great I am. And it's a cry of distress, O oh Lord. And his first cry is a question. How long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Well, why don't you just get straight to your point, Habakkuk, right? 
No prayer formula here, so it's A-C-T-S, A-C-T-S, adoration, confession. You know what? Forget it. God, how long am I going to cry out and you're not going to listen to me? He just jumps right into it. Not A lot of times I'll say we need to enter God's courts with praises, and we do. Habakkuk's like, God, you ain't listening. And it's just a direct plea to God, asking why God is not listening to Habakkuk when he cries for help. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Obviously Habakkuk is feeling some frustration or desperation about something. So what's he crying out and not being heard about? So how long shall I cry for help and you'll not hear or cry to you violence? He's asking for help and he's crying out violence. So there's a cry for an end to violence and it seems that God is not doing anything about it. So relevant to our day and time, isn't it? What we will find out through the course of the book is that the violence that Habakkuk is decrying here is in his own nation of Judah. Here he's not worried about Babylonians. We'll get there in a minute. His people, his nation of Judah is plagued with constant violence. Everywhere Habakkuk looks in Judah, he's seeing violence and he's crying out to God to put an end to this violence, but it seems that God's doing nothing. Habakkuk cries violence and God will not save. Can you relate to that? Violence, God, when are you going to help me? Crickets. Habakkuk goes on to ask, why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Habakkuk is disgusted by all the sin, all the iniquity he sees around him, and he accuses God of making him see it. That's an accusation that God could make an end of this iniquity, but he hasn't. So God is making Habakkuk see all this. All this iniquity. And then he says that God looks idly at wrong. Like God sees all this wrong, all this sin, all this iniquity, and it's still there. God hasn't whisked it away. He just seemingly looks idly at it. Looking around, Habakkuk sees destruction and violence, strife and contention. And these are all obviously bad things, hard things, evil things. Destruction, violence, strife, and contention are not things we would associate with God. Them's the devil's works, right? And Habakkuk says this is all he's seeing around him. And finally in verse 4, Habakkuk draws his conclusion. So, the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. Again, can you relate? For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. The state of things in Judah, with violence and wrong and strife and contention amidst God's inaction, Habakkuk says, has made it like the law is paralyzed. The law can't respond. The law is inactive. The law is powerless and justice never goes forth. Anybody feel that way today? The law and justice are just lame, being trampled on. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk paints the picture of being surrounded by wicked people, and those wicked people pervert justice. The wicked are in power, the wicked are surrounding the righteous, and wickedness is running the show. 
And Habakkuk is completely bumfuzzled as to how and why God is allowing this. Well, you think he's shocked here, wait till he hears back from God. Which is what happens in verses 5 to 11. So Habakkuk has spoken his lament. Verses 5 to 11 is God responding to Habakkuk. We'll read them all and then work through them a little more deliberately and slowly. God says, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Time out. Those are the words of God. In response to Habakkuk saying, Everywhere I look there's violence. When are you going to do something about it? Because you ain't doing nothing about it right now. God says, all right, I'll answer your question. His reply here in verses 5 to 11. And man, what a reply it is. I don't think this was an answer that he wrote down in his prayer journal. Answered prayer, check. Thank you, God. What is going on here? God calls on Habakkuk to look among the nations and see. God tells Habakkuk to wonder and be astounded. Now remember, Habakkuk has asked God why in the world nothing is being done about all the evil and disorder in Judah among God's people. And so God begins his reply by calling Habakkuk to look past his own nose to the nations. To quit his griping and be amazed. For, God says, I am doing a work. You say I'm idle, but I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Uh Uh-oh. Look away from yourself, Habakkuk. Look at the big old world and look at what I'm doing. Because you wouldn't believe it. You may not believe it anyway after I tell you. For behold, look at this, focus on this. I, the Lord, Yahweh, the great I am, I am raising up the Chaldeans. Uh Uh-oh. This is a pretty big deal. Again, who are the Chaldeans? They're the part. They are part of the army that destroyed Nineveh in our Nahum study. It's the Babylonian Empire, which would overtake the Assyrian Empire as the dominant power of the known world after destroying Assyria's capital of Nineveh and then the Assyrian Empire altogether. And in the nicest way I can say this, these aren't nice people. Well, I don't have to say that because God spends these verses describing them himself. God, who has the best perspective on these matters, says this about these Chaldeans that he is raising up. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. I, God, am raising up the Chaldeans. That bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Now, if you'll remember, that's what he destroyed Nineveh for. 
Right? It's because they marched through the earth and took things that weren't theirs. And he's not done. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Now if we just had this description of these Chaldeans by itself, we would think, man, God's going to bust them in the mouth. But what we're seeing from God is, God's going to use them to bust Judah in the mouth. After this description, which is quite a description, isn't it? They're bitter and hasty. They march through the breadth of the earth. They take people's houses for themselves. They're dreaded and fearsome. They operate under their own definition of justice. They mount speedy steeds, both fierce and fast. They're violent, terribly violent, taking captives like grains of sand. They laugh at kings and fortresses, and they worship their own might as their God. They are cruel and powerful and sweeping through the whole earth, taking what they want and not seeing much opposition to their plans and armies. And who is raising them up? To do what? God is raising them up to deal with the evil that Habakkuk is complaining about in Judah. God is going to use the Chaldeans, Babylon, to discipline his people for their evil deeds. Now say what? It's like if we heard as Christians that God was going to raise up an Islamic terroristic army to discipline us. God said this. Huh. I would guess that's not the reply that Habakkuk was expecting. Look at verses 12 to 17. Um, God... uh, Are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. Are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my Holy One. Oh, I repeated that. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net... And makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? So Habakkuk had come to God voicing complaint over all the evils he sees when he looks around him among God's people in Judah. Every time he turns on the news it's all bad. Okay, maybe that's not quite what's going on here but you get the picture. And so he asks God to do something about all this evil. And God replied and said, I'm going to do something. I've already planned it. 
I'm going to bring Babylon in to discipline you guys and deal with all these evils. And so now Habakkuk replies to that answer, and his first response is, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? Are are you not? Now that's an interesting initial reply. Note that it's in the form of a question, not as a statement. It's not a praise as much as it really seems to be an accusation. Are you not from everlasting? I think... I would translate it in the message by Jason. Have you lost your mind, God? Because this seems so out of character for you. It's consistent with the tone and feel of a lament. What would normally be a praise and or descriptor of God from everlasting instead is a questioning or a frustration at that same God. Yes, he does refer to God as, O Lord, my God, my Holy One which shows that he recognizes both the position of God and Habakkuk's position with that God. But it's in light of that fact that Habakkuk is questioning. You're my God. You're the Holy One. This doesn't sound like you. Or at least my picture of you. This doesn't seem consistent with what I've come to expect of you. And so he says, (laughs) Habakkuk's plan is, we shall not die. I counter your, you're going to die with, we shall not die. (laughs) Because he expects God to protect and preserve Judah, not bludgeon them with or by the Babylonians. Being from everlasting, being my God, surely you wouldn't do something like this. Surely. You're not going to harm me or us. And he knows that's what God is implying by raising up the Chaldeans because he says next, O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment. You have ordained them as a judgment and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. Now can you feel the incredulity? He's saying he knows that Babylon coming is a judgment, a reproof, but worries that that means that Judah will be wiped out. We shall not surely die. Are you going to kill us? I know I said I see evil everywhere, but death and judgment by the Chaldeans was not in my plans. You could surely do something different, right? You could fix us or help us in a better way, in my opinion. I-M-O. Surely you... You, God, of all beings in the universe, couldn't do that, right? You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Obviously, who Babylon is and what Babylon does could never be God's will, right? Right? God's too pure to look at all their evil and their wrongs and be okay with what they're doing, much less doing it to His people. That's evil, that's wrong, and God can't even look upon evil. How then could He ordain it? How then could He approve of it? How could He possibly use evil as part of His will? Habakkuk knows God better than that, he thinks. So that begs the question then. God, why do you idly look at traitors... And remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. I think that's a pretty good question, don't you? 
Why would God just sit and watch and remain quiet when the unrighteous, the evil, the wicked just beat up on those who are rightly serving God and His people? A few years ago, there was a, a video of some Islamic terrorists, extremists, beheading some Christians in Egypt. It's not family viewing. They published it on the internet. It's out there for everybody to see. And how could you watch that and not think these things? Right? How can you just remain quiet when all this evil is being committed against your people? So Habakkuk himself has shown that Judah, God's people, aren't what they should be, and he's asking God to deal with them. And it seems that Habakkuk would have God use righteous people to deal with unrighteous people. Or even better, he would have God intervene directly to and with righteous people to bless and help them by removing the unrighteousness from among them. Bless the righteous and curse the unrighteous. That's the God we know and love, right? That's the God that we can handle, right? Not unrighteous people dealing with righteous people in a harsh, violent way. Habakkuk has a better idea than God does. And Habakkuk is calling on God to come to his senses. God, come to your senses and do things the right way. Mm. Feels awfully familiar to me. I think this way. I reason this way. And I, like Habakkuk, make myself God by doing so. God, by sitting idly by while the bad guys beat up the good guys, you prove that your way is not best. You prove that your way is not perfect. Let me tell you how you should handle this, God. And that's like 75% of my meager prayer life right there. I think. Habakkuk goes on to describe these evil men and their effects on others and God's role in it. Verses 14 to 17 again. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? So note the you and the he's here. Habakkuk says that you have made mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. Who's he talking to or about there? Who's the you? He's talking to God. He says that God makes mankind like fish or crawling things that have no ruler. Think Finding Nemo. Swim down, swim down, swim down. That's, that's somebody's got to tell him. So what's it mean when, when Habakkuk says that God's made mankind like fish or crawling things that have no ruler? He's saying, I feel helpless and I feel abandoned by God. I, I'm just like a fish or a worm with nobody to lead me, nobody to help me, nobody to protect me. And he projects that feeling onto everybody, all mankind, and he blames God for it. You make mankind like helpless, hopeless creatures, and then you fail to care for them. And then what? Well, then he brings all of them up with a hook. Now, who's the he? He is not you, and you is not he. The he here 
The he is the oppressor, the persecutor, which is here the Babylonians who are coming. And he, the Babylonian, (laughs) brings all of these helpless, leaderless, protectionless fish up with a hook or drug out with a net. These helpless fish, created so by God, are hauled in with a dragnet by the oppressor. And that oppressor, that persecutor, rejoices and is glad. And how does this persecutor rejoice? By thanking God, the creator God who gave him his position? No, by sacrificing to his net and making offerings to his dragnet. He praises his tools of oppression as his salvation. He doesn't acknowledge or praise God. Instead, he boasts in his strength, his resourcefulness, his power. He worships himself and his skill with the tools that he has developed. Praise the net. Glory in the dragnet. Because, for, he lives in luxury. And his food is rich. There's no end to the blessings and pleasure that this he, this man, has because of his powerful ability to feed on the helpless fish. He's getting fat on the poor, the hapless, the helpless masses, exerting his strength through hook and net, which here refers to military might. And fish don't have hooks or nets. You ever seen a a hook coming out of the water when you go fishing, land in your boat? You're like, what is that? That's got pizza on it. Give me that. That's not how it works. Fish don't have hooks or nets, so they are the prey. They're not the predator, and this prey makes the predator fat and sassy. And there seems to be no end coming in this cycle of oppression and boasting. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Is Babylon just going to roll over us and keep going with no opposition from God? Is there no end to evil men persecuting righteous men? God, you can do something about this. Why don't you? Are you just going to watch it all happen as he mercilessly kills the nations and let it go on forever? Habakkuk seems to have reached a crescendo in his fears and accusations. He can't make sense of any of this. I think he might have felt a little... I don't mean to be hard on him, but I think he kind of went a little bit self-righteous talking about all the evil people in Judah, implying that he wasn't one. And he's asking God to take care of these evil people. And God says, okay, I will. Oh, no, 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 not like that. And he just can't make sense of it. And we didn't read this in the public reading, but we're going to read 2-1, which is where we'll finish today. I will take my stand at my watch post, Habakkuk says, and station myself on the tower And look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. I love this. Again, it may seem like I've given Habakkuk a hard time, but I really do like his vibe. And here you see a really good side of him. He's directed his lament about the people of God to God himself. He's heard from God about that, and then he voices his lament complaint about the evil of the Babylonians. And now he clearly shows that he fully expects God to answer him in his latest complaint. And he's willing to wait for the reply. 
And again, we'll cover this next week to start out this chapter then. But I think it's great to look at this verse in relation to what we've covered today. He says he's going to stand at his watch post, station himself on the tower, and look out to see what God will say to him. He's expecting God to address his complaints. Whether that be rebuke or correction, God's not going to show up and just say, zip your lip. We don't ask those questions around here. Who grew up like that? Don't ask that question. Habakkuk's like, I'm asking it. And I'm expecting him to answer me. He's fully engaged, Habakkuk is, in this conversation. And he trusts that God is too. And that's really good. And then he says he will answer whatever God does answer him with. Which is exactly what we'll see over the next two chapters. But I love leaving this week with Habakkuk not just lamenting but lamenting and then waiting for God's reply, whatever it may be. And then looking forward to responding to God afterwards. Etch this picture in your mind as we finish the passage today of Habakkuk, silent and waiting for God to speak before he utters anything else. I will take my stand and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer. Dot, dot, dot. But we got some more work to do. We finished the text, but we need to apply what we've seen in chapter 1 as we finish up. <clears throat> we'll be looking at application through three C's. I know there are seven C's, but we're only covering three today. Cleansing, confusion, and control. Cleansing, confusion, and control. First application point, again, what do I do in light of what I've seen today? How should my life change as a result of being confronted by the Word and the Holy Spirit? What should I do differently? Or what should I continue to do that I am doing? So, one, cleansing. We see from today's text that Habakkuk's original lament was at the state of God's people. It was their evil, their lack of repentance that was troubling him. Let's look back at verses 2 to 4. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, which he would say is God's law. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surrounds the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. So yeah, this is what Habakkuk saw when he looked around at the nation of Judah near the end of its existence. It's not a pretty picture. Violence, iniquity, wrong, destruction, strife, contention, the law paralyzed, justice not perverted, justice perverted and not progressing. And the wicked surrounding the righteous. Would that bother you if you saw that? What do we see when we look around the church today? The church. I'm not talking about the world. I think we could say the same. What do I see when I look at my own heart? At times, more times than not, I think these very things. So... What do we do about it? 
What should our response be as we look around, as we look inside and see all of this evil? We should lament like Habakkuk and we should ask God to respond and right these wrongs. And where does he start? Where do we ask God to start? It's not with them, it's with me. It's not with you, it's with me. It's not with them, it's with us, God. Start here. Fix the wrongs in the world. Draw a circle. Step in it and say, start in this circle. Oh, we're quick to point out everybody else's problems. Other churches and how they don't do things right. Other brothers and sisters in Christ that we use quotation marks to describe. Our brothers and sisters who we don't agree with. But we should be those who individually and corporately say, God, start with me. We should ask God to purify the world starting with his church. Peter says this, 1 Peter 4, 17, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? That's, yeah, just that one verse. It's time for judgment to begin with all the bad people. With all the sinners. Wretched, nasty, terrible people that they are. It's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And this should be our constant prayer. Because listen, we ain't perfect. And he will present the church to himself spotless and without wrinkle or blemish or any such thing. But we ain't there yet. So God, break out the iron. Break out the shout. Scrub us. Apply the heat. And make us clean. And remove the wrinkles and the blemishes. And start with me. We should be crying out for cleansing. As individuals and as a church. We should be crying out for the discipline of God. Not punishment. There's no condemnation. There's no punishment. But there is discipline. Hebrews 12, 5-11. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which you have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us, our earthly fathers, for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Anybody want to share in his holiness? For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later, 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 it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God, cleanse me and embrace the discipline that comes with that calling out for cleansing because that means that God is treating me as his son and it doesn't feel good right now. 
I think part of the fear of the Lord is fearing this discipline. I'm going to point out my brave nine-year-old son who came with us today without his mom and his sister to sit with. Part of my job is to look at him funny if he gets out of line, right? Because he knows that if I look at him funny and he doesn't respond, he's going to be disciplined later. He don't like the discipline. But it's for his good because it's instructing, teaching, leading him in the path that he should go into. And hopefully I can teach him those lessons so that he doesn't suffer the maladies that come with disobeying God later. And that discipline is there for his good because I love him. I do love you, brother. Brother. God loves us, so he disciplines us. And when we cry out for cleansing, we're asking him to discipline us. And so we receive the discipline from a loving father. And it's not pleasant in the moment, but we know that later it will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness in us as it trains us. So that's application point one, cleansing. Now, confusion. Habakkuk showed some visible confusion at God's lack of action and then at the action that God planned. You ever felt like that? If you have not had times of confusion in your Christian walk, I guess you haven't been paying very good attention. It's not a cookie cutter. It's not be a good boy and God blesses you. Do the right thing. And everything will go all right for you. There's a lot of things this life is and it ain't that. And sometimes it confuses the heck out of us, right? God, what are you doing? Or why are you not doing anything? My loved one is suffering and I have prayed and I have prayed and I have prayed and they're not getting any better. God, they're getting worse. God, I have prayed for the salvation of this family member or this friend and they ain't saved. God, there is evil running rampant in the world. Terrible things are happening to what I would consider good people. Terrible things are happening to terrible people too. But but why? Have you never felt this confusion? Or things that don't line up with your impression of who God is? Read the Psalms. Here's one for you. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Lift up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I've prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. This is where I've got to be careful. Because we tend to just go to the the bleak, the black, the negative, the hard. But you're going to have seasons in your life like this. And you're going to be asking God, no disrespect intended, where the heck are you? Where were you when I was abused as a child, God? Where were you when that terrible thing happened to me? Where are you as all these terrible things are happening to all these people? Where are you, God, as this world marches toward hell with its hair on fire? What are you doing? 
Have you forgotten me? Have you forgotten them? What do we do with our confusion? Like the psalmist, like Habakkuk, we take it to God. God doesn't say we don't ask questions like that around here. Again, read the Psalms. Half of them or more are are this. Are you going to stand far off forever? Why do the wicked like rejoice? Why, why are they doing all right? And here we, the righteous, are struggling. You take it to God. And you voice your lament to Him. Because the world don't have answers for you. Your counselor, your therapist doesn't have answers for you. I wish I could count the times I'm standing in a therapy office saying, I don't know. I don't know. Because I don't know. I could give you some pat, cliche answer. Just let go and let God, brother. And it's like spitting in somebody's face. Because it's not helping them a bit. It's just making them more bitter toward God than they were. So I tell them, take it to God. Voice your displeasure. Lament to Him. Well, we shouldn't accuse God of evil. What did Habakkuk do? God, you're sitting idly by. You don't care a bit. You're not doing anything. And God says, I'm doing something. Well, you shouldn't do that, God. I wish somebody would have set me down at 14 and I would not have listened to them, but it had been in here anyway, and told me life is going to be hard. Things ain't going to make sense sometimes. Listen, church, life's going to be hard. You're not going to be able to make sense of all of it. Take that confusion to God. God says, you wouldn't believe what I'm going to do if I told you. And what does Habakkuk do? We'll see, eventually, Habakkuk embraces the confusion. Habakkuk embraces the solution that God puts forth. So should we. You're never going to get rid of the confusion. You're never going to have all the answers. That's what we just spent all this time in Job talking about. But if we, like Job, can come in our confusion and say, God, I know that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So I'm going to try to quit solving all the world's problems and I'm going to trust you. Then we've taken a big step. I don't understand it. I can't fathom it. I'm looking at a tiny little micro dot of of eternity. You see it all. And I'm confused as I'll get out. Thank you for finding that. About eternity. Eternity in common... You don't need another. God, I don't get it. And I trust you. I'm confused. You're not. God, tell me what you're going to do. Well, you wouldn't believe it if I told you. Okay. So that's what we do with our confusion, cleansing confusion. 
And finally, control. We ask for cleansing. We embrace the confusion. We take that confusion to God. Why? Oh, it's so cliche. But it's still true. God is in control. Not Janet Jackson. Miss Jackson if you're nasty. God is in control. And through the cleansing, in the midst of the confusion, that's really good news. Oh, we quote it all the time. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. I'm just afraid we've just made that so cliche, we don't think about it anymore. You're like, well, that's the answer to all the questions, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. It really, really is. I don't know what you're going through. Some of you do. I don't know what's going on in your head, in your heart, in your life, in your home, on the internet. But I do know, I embrace the fact that God is in control of it all and that He is causing all things, all things to work together for my good because I am called according to His purpose. God's in control of every single bit of it. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Know that the confusing times and the cleansing times are times we learn to trust His control even more. I don't know if y'all know this or not, but from today's text and from a lot of things, sometimes the most confusing things in the world are what God's doing. Imagine being Peter, John, James, Simon the Zealot, Judas, and the Messiah has come. Rock on, Peter. Rock on, John. It's all coming true in front of our very eyes. This guy walked on the water. This guy opened blinded eyes. This guy called a dead man out of the tomb. This is him. And then him turns around and says, they're going to crucify me. I think that would be a little bit confusing, don't you? Some of the most confusing acts of all times, all of the most confusing acts of all times, are the eternal plan of God. The Messiah went to a cross and died. That's confusing. After the fact, though, 
The Holy Spirit helped these guys figure this out. Acts 2, Peter's sermon. This Jesus, who was dead, I remember, he was dead. I saw him die, I denied him right before that. It stunk, I was stupid. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Say what? Those two things don't seem like they go together. These evil people crucified and killed God in the flesh. At the hands of lawless men. And that was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. What? Later, Acts 4. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, the fish, those helpless fish, remember them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Pause for a second. Pontius Pilate, Herod, Gentiles, peoples of Israel, they were doing what, what, what God had predestined. What? You mean disobedient Jews, like the ones in Nahum or Habakkuk's time, handed Jesus over to a pagan army, like in Habakkuk's time, who then brutally murdered him? Sounds like Habakkuk's time. Sounds like the very thing that Habakkuk was lamenting. And it was all God's plan. Back to chapter 2. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. For he's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad. And my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you, listen church, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of this we are all 
witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until, listen, I make your enemies your footstool. Evil men will wax from bad to worse. And Jesus is going to make them all his footstool. Hard things are going to get harder. Confusing things may get more confusing. And God's going to make all things right. And we know that because he crucified the Lord of glory to bear the penalty for the sins of his people. He let him die. But he raised him up on the third day. And established a testimony for all eternity that God the Father approved of the sacrifice of Christ the Son. So then, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. God is in control of nations. God is in control of people. God is in control of oceans, molecules, quasars, fish, Worms, me, you, and the salvation of men's souls. God is in control of everything. When we need cleansing, when we are confused, which is this whole path of sanctification, we are to trust in His control. We are to know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. And say, I will wait for you. I will embrace you. I will embrace this confusion. I will embrace this chaos. I will embrace the discipline and the cleansing because you are in perfect control and you have promised nothing but good for me. Now if you're not in Christ this morning... The wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Flee from that wrath. Flee into Christ. You said that last week. Hopefully I say it next week too. The answer to your sins is forgiveness found through the death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and glorification of Jesus Christ. Calling out to him, asking for forgiveness, asking for cleansing, asking for the help in the midst of your confusion, Confessing him as Christ and knowing that he is in control. Ceding that control, taking yourself off the throne and seeing Jesus as the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords and embracing him. Let's pray. Father, we have no way of figuring you out. Your ways are past finding out. So we will wait for you. I will wait for you, Lord. On your word I will rely. 
I will wait for you, surely wait for you till my soul is satisfied. I will wait for you, I will wait for you through the storm and through the night. I will wait for you, surely wait for you, for your love is my delight. May we sing that with confidence as we go through this day, this week, this life, and give you glory in it all by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We just stand and receive a benediction. I got a good one. If I can find it again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed, but stay and eat with us if you can.